We're in the book of Micah. In the Old Testament, Micah was written 800 years before the coming of Christ. And Micah talks about the fact that because the people had departed from the living God and made idols, that God's judgment was come upon them because they hadn't repented and, and come back. So he says that there's going to be this general judgment. And he says this in chapter 3. He said, I say this, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? But you now hate the good and you love the evil. He said, you should be the leaders and, and you should be leading out in, in justice for the oppressed, but you are oppressing people. And he says, you're oppressing people that is in your power to bless. Chapter two, he says, woe to those who devise wickedness, verse one, and work out evil on their beds. When in the morning it dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. In other words, you do it because you can do it. Verse 2, they covet fields and they, they seize them and they covet houses and they take them away and they oppress a man and his house and a man and his inheritance. And it says later in the chapter that you defraud widows of their homes and you defraud orphans of their inheritance and you oppress those who merely pass through your land. And so in chapter 2, verse 3, therefore, Thus says the Lord Jehovah, behold, against his family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it is a time of disaster. So he's going to scatter them. But then he says this, but I will gather you back one day. And so we run, we turn to chapter four and verse 10. In chapter four, verse 10, it, it, it says this, it says, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. Writhe like a woman in labor, for, for, for you shall go out from this city and dwell in the open country and you shall go to Babylon. And here's the promise though. Now this is saying you're gonna to go to Babylon. This is a hundred years before it happened. This is there, you shall be rescued. There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And the question is, how will he do this? And this, we come to the focal point, I think, of Micah, the whole book, Micah 5, verse 2 and following, that says this. This is how it's accomplished. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. They'll be scattered, but they'll come back. Verse four, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. What a glorious passage. So, so he says that this, this, this deliverance 
is going to come out of Bethlehem. He says it's going to come in a time in an advent of humility, and this is what he will do, and this will be the the the, replica, rep, the recourse of what he does. You shall dwell secure, and he shall be your peace. But it's accomplished because there will be one who will come forth from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who is too little to be named among the clans of Judah. So, so this is, Bethlehem was a, was a backwater village eight miles from Jerusalem. It didn't even have a warning light. They had nothing going for them. It was on the outskirts in the middle of nowhere. And the only, the only thing they had, historically, if there was a Daughters of Judah that put up historical placards, it would say, Bethlehem, the birthplace of King David. That was it. And it says, out of this nothingness, this littleness, shall come the one who is, who is to be ruler over Israel, the one who is from ancient of days. He has no beginning and he has no end, we believe this says. He's to be the ruler, the king. And, and, and this, is, this is Bethlehem. And, and, and you look at this. I don't want you to miss it, that God blesses and uses littleness and nothingness and brokenness the Apostle Paul had the equivalent of two PhDs, trained to the most wonderful understanding of the Old Testament covenant law. Came to know Jesus and he penned these words to a church in a major city that was filled with commerce and education the city of Corinth, the small little church in Corinth, and he looked at this small little church in this major city with all types of power and influence and education and wealth. And this is what he says, this little small church. He says, church, hear this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to human standards. Some were, but the vast majority weren't. Not many of you were powerful, some were, but the vast majority were not. Not many of you were of noble birth. Maybe a few, but the vast majority just common people. But God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the worldly system to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world's eyes to shame the supposedly strong God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no one would ever boast before him except in Jesus. And I, I read this, and we can go through this, and we sing these hymns, and we can forget that Bethlehem was a nothing place, that defended the divine glory of God in the flesh, Jesus was, came through the body of a teenager. The only other human witness was a carpenter, a day laborer named Joseph. And the baby was placed on the floor of a stable. And the major odor of the stable was not what you smell in homes today at Christmas, pine or the cinnamon of hot apple cypher or, or something like that. The, the, the major smell was manure. If you ever lived in an agricultural community where there are cattle, the, the major smell is manure. And you, you get used to it and you go away and you come back and you go, oh my goodness, but that was the smell. And we, 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 
we need to understand that. That God comes to help broken people see the beauty and grandeur of Jesus. A birth that was hardly noticed. Hardly noticed until a few months later when some wise men came to wicked King Herod and said, where is this king of the Jews? He said, what are you talking about? They said, we've seen his star. And so he calls in the scribes and he says, what is this about the king of the Jews? Where is he to be born? And they quote Micah chapter 5, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. But it was largely unnoticed. God blesses littleness. Don't, don't miss that, Bethlehem. So, so in July of 2013, there was a birth. The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, William and Kate, by the way, I could be friends with them. I think they're pretty nice people. They're just, they seem to be very approachable. I, I, I like them. I'm not ready to bring the monarchy back to America, but I, I like, I like William Kate. But they gave birth to a little boy. She gave birth to a little boy. His name was and is George Alexander Lewis of Cambridge. And there was great anticipation. Everybody was talking about what gender the child would be. And, and so when the child was born, it was a boy, eight, eight pounds and six ounces. Uh, and... and the Brits followed tradition, which is part of the beauty of Great Britain, and they, they, they announced his birth on an easel placed in front of Buckingham Palace. Put his name, and everybody celebrated, and it went out, and, and all over the world, nations that had once been part of the Commonwealth celebrated the birth of now the child, this third in the line to be the head of the royal family. In Niagara Falls, there was, they, they had these two huge vats of pink and blue, and when the boy was announced, they poured it into Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls became blue for a half hour or so as people celebrated the birth of Prince George. It is estimated that Great Britain spent $300 million celebrating the Prince, uh, the Prince George's birth. And I think of that, and it's, it's a very notable birth. All births are notable. But this is the royal family. And, but this birth was God in the flesh, the hope of the ages, the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, the one who would fling open the gates of heaven for all who would come to him. And the only witness was a carpenter named Joseph and a teenager named Mary. And I think God blesses brokenness and littleness. So this week I was listened to Christmas music and I YouTubed some Christmas music and something came up called the Celtic Singers. And it was a recording of a live concert they did. The Celtic Singers are a group of uh, women. And this is, two of these four were in that quartet of singers, but they were singing beautiful Christmas music and uh, uh, you know, they're really good looking. And they have angelic voices. And one of them was playing the violin with dexterity and grace. And, and they were in Dublin in a beautiful theater that was ornately decorated. So here are these really, really, really attractive women who sing with angelic voices. Just, that's not fair. 
You know, if you're going to have a great voice, you should be saddled with something else. But they, they just had, and they were in these great robes, beautiful robes, and the, the, the supporting choir on the first row was, must have been all the good-looking young people in the choir because they were all good-looking standing there. And then there they are in their finery and their beauty and their talent in this ornate place, and the first thing they sing is, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And as I'm listening to it, I start giggling because I said to myself, self don't miss the irony of this moment. I mean, great looking, talented, ornately dressed, beautiful, coiffured, handsome, everything. But this hymn is about a bunch of, of marginalized, nothing men who heard about Jesus from angels. Shepherds, Luke 2, you know the story? While shepherds were in their field at night, you know, the, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And King James says they were sore afraid, which is probably the understatement of, of, of all history. I mean, they were just traumatized. And the angel says, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. For you as today is born in the city of David. Bethlehem, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. And then she goes through that. And it says, and suddenly they were surrounded by a, a host of angels. I mean, a bunch of them singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. And I thought, don't miss this. These are shepherds. They, they, these shepherds couldn't testify in the law court because they were known to be liars. Shepherds that did the stuff at night. Shepherds were on, on, on the peripheral. They were the outcasts of the culture. If you were a Jewish mom or dad, he went to a dinner party and they said, what does your son do? You did not say he's a shepherd because that is like saying he's a loser. You may say he's in the mutton industry, he's an executive with whatever, but you won't say he is a shepherd. You get it? So, so I'm not against attractive people who have great voices and are in beautiful theaters and, and sing and play the violin. I'm not, I'm, that's wonderful. But I thought it's how ironic they're singing these beautiful women who have incredibly talented voices and who have a gift are singing about a bunch of guys that they would call losers. And I just rejoice that God comes to call broken people to know him. And how symbolic it is that he's born in Bethlehem, an outcast. And as the hymn says, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. The second thing is, what does this Messiah, what will he do, this one born in Bethlehem? And this is verse four. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of of the Lord his God. So he, he shall stand and shepherd. Stand and shepherd. Stand means to care for, to defend. Shepherd means to guide and feed. Our Savior defends us, cares for us, feeds us, and nourishes us. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. You see, Jesus, as we read the New Testament, Jesus is able to stand and protect because he fulfilled his calling to be the sacrifice for our sins. 
He can shepherd us because he's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. In John chapter 18, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, they come to him, a mob comes to him, of course led by Judas, and Jesus says, who do you seek? And when they told him, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. I love this part. And they drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, the, the majesty of Jesus blew them to the ground. I love that. And he says, once again, I told you I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go, his disciples. And then it says this, verse 10, then Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I need to drink the cup the Father has given me. And the cup the Father has given me is to be the sinless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because on the cross, the judgment that should fall upon his people, us, fell upon him. And then in chapter 19, he cries out, it is finished. It's done. And he died. So, so, so he is able to stand and shepherd and care for his people because he died on the cross for our sins. Behold what he has accomplished. So in something called the New City Catechism, question 51, asks, what does the ascension of Jesus into heaven mean for us? And here, here's the answer. Christ physically ascended on our behalf just as he came down to earth physically on our account. And he is now advocating for us. He is preparing a place for us. And he also sends us his Holy Spirit. So you step back and say, this one who stands in shepherds, what does this one who stands, what does he do for us? This, this is what he does for us right now in heaven. Right now, <clears throat> he is praying for his people in heaven. He is interceding for us. He is saying, they are mine. No one can separate them from the love of the triune God. No one can separate them from my love. Greater is he who is in them than he who is in the world. They belong to me. So Jesus is advocating or praying for us right now in heaven. That gives you great confidence. It says later in this passage, they shall dwell secure. Now that security... Jesus is praying for us. He loves us. Isaiah says that, that, that when, when he died, he died with our hands, our names etched upon the palms of his hands. I mean, th this is our savior. So nothing can separate us. We are in him. We have union with him. We're in Christ. He's advocating for us. Secondly, he's preparing a place for us right now. So just... We have the second wave of COVID. Uh, we are, we're trying to be responsible. We've stopped doing certain things because of that. And we're, 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 we're trying to do the right thing. And, and yet, 
during this whole COVID situation, I have been somewhat, um, not, not amazed, a, a little bit, well, I've been very aware of the fact that as I read magazines and I listen to people being interviewed and as I read the newspaper, that there are, there are a lot of people that are just afraid to die. I mean, they've, they've, they've been quarantined since March. They won't leave their house. And I'm, not being, I'm not being critical of them, but, but, and, or they won't do this, they won't do that. <clears throat> let, me, let me say this to you. Don't be afraid to die. Now, I don't want to rush into a COVID-sensitive area without a face mask. Don't misunderstand me. I want to be smart. But, 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 but really, I'm, we're going to die something, whether it's COVID or cancer or, you know, whatever. You're, we're going to die. And for us, if you trust in Jesus, death opens the door to eternal joy. I mean, we, we die and we go into the presence of the living Christ. And we experience life the way it was really meant to be experienced. And then when the new heavens and the new earth come, we're, we're going to, everything, the most beautiful tree you've ever seen, is going to be 1,000 times more beautiful. And the, and the color patterns will be 1,000 times more rich. And the food will be 1,000 times more tasty. And so forth and so on. The relationships will be free and deep and strong and no sin. And so when I think about standing and feeding, he, he's not only advocating, he's preparing a place for us. And it's glorious. And then thirdly says, and he, I like the present tense, where, and he sends us his spirit. Right now he is sending out fresh supplies of the Holy Spirit to us so that we can understand the scripture, so that we can understand sin, so that we can exalt the name of Jesus as we speak his name. He sends out his, he's anointing us afresh with the Holy Spirit. He stands and he shepherds his flock in the majesty of the name of the Lord. That's what he does. And the result is, it says, it says in Micah 5, and, and they shall dwell secure and he shall be their peace. So we have security and we have peace. I think of the, the Christmas hymn that says, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting life or light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. O little town of Bethlehem. Hopes and fears. There's security in Christ. There's peace in Christ. Sin's destroyed. Barrier destroyed. The sin is a barrier. Fellowship with the triune God. The hope of heaven. You know, the, the Little Hand of Bethlehem was written by a man named Phillips Brooks. Let me tell you a story real quickly. Phillips Brooks was um, an Episcopalian pastor. He was trained in the state of Virginia, went to seminary there for several years, and then he pastored a church in Virginia in the 1850s. Late in 1850, he moved back to his home area, which was Boston, where he ministered for the next 30-some years. Um, but when the Civil War hit in 1861. He was very much uh, supporting of the Northern cause, but he grieved many of his parishioners who were experiencing hardship and death in the Virginia. And so in 1865, he's in Jerusalem on a trip and this Christmas day, and this is only eight months after a, the, the horrible Civil War where 620,000 American men died. 
more than all the men killed in all the conflicts in the history of our nation in that war, in a city of, excuse me, a country of 32 million people. So anyway, it was, it was devastating. There was economic dearth. There was brokenness. There was sorrow. And in this, the middle of this very dark time, he's in Jerusalem and he gets up on Christmas morning and he writes a little poem. And he sticks it in his Bible and really thinks about it a few times, but not much. And three years later, he's supposed to give the words for a hymn to a friend who's going to put it to music. And he remembered this poem and he dug it out and he gave it to his friend. The word, the, the rumor is the night before the performance in Sunday school in a small church. And the friend put it to music and they read it and they kind of laughed and they said, well, the prose is not that great. The music isn't that great. This is probably the only time this will ever be sung and it's the, it's the Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. They missed it. <laughs> but the last stanza goes like this, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel, Emmanuel God with us. They shall dwell secure and he shall be their peace. You know, as I think of Christmas, I think, I mean, here we are in the second wave of COVID and people are live streaming and, but I, but I think as you communicate with your coworkers and neighbors and friends and family, just to ask this simple question, who is this Jesus that we're singing about? Uh, who is he? I was reading an interview with a, an artist that I really am not familiar with, but in the interview she was asked about her faith or her religion, not faith. And she said, I, I believe in a power power is called quote, whatever dude, she's very, very offhanded about it. The God I serve or the God I know is a surfing Santa that's kind of like my granddad. And I read that and I, my heart just broke. And I thought, here's a woman who will face eternity and she's so casual about who is God. We believe that God is defined by the person and work of Jesus. There is an eternal God who is triune. In the fullness of time, this God became a man with a body of flesh and blood. He came down physically. He went back physically. He suffered on the cross physically. He rose from the dead, dead with a physical body. He was seen by 500 men. He rose and went to heaven physically. So, so this year, we had the death of, of, a, of a guy that I, have, that I enjoyed for years uh, who was the host of Jeopardy, Alex Trebek. He was the host of Jeopardy for 37 years. And he did it with such grace and uh, kindness. I, I enjoyed Jeopardy. But there are certain nights I thought, man, I could really do well tonight. And there are certain nights I'm going, man, I would be really bad tonight. But Alex Trebek. And uh, so Alex Trebek um, said this. He wrote a book entitled The Answer Is Reflections on My Life. This is what he said. Here's a quote. And you'll see the quote here. Am I a believer? Well, I believe we are all part of the great soul, what some call God. We are God and God is us. We are one with our maker. How do I know this? 
It's not that I know it, it's that I feel it. The same way that when I go to Africa, I feel this is where I ultimately came from. The same way that I feel in my gut that my that gene is my soulmate, I just feel it. Close quote. I, I, I pondered this quote. I thought, here's a guy who for 37 years dealt with facts. Let's say you're, let's say you're, you're playing Jeopardy, and the category is baseball. And you say, I like, I'll take baseball for $300. And the answer is, he was known as the Sultan of Swat. Who is it? Babe Ruth. Okay. You buzz and you say, Lou Gehrig. Same team, 1927, Yankees. And Alex says, sorry, the answer is Babe Ruth. Says, no, 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 no. In my gut, intuitively, I feel that it should be Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig should have been called the Sultan of Swat. Not the Iron Horse, the Sultan of Swat. He was called the Iron Horse. I just feel I intuit that. Or category, state capitals. $400. Alex, answer. Um, is the state capital of Missouri? The answer is, or the question is, What's Jefferson City? Thank you. We had, nobody knew it in the first service. And there's a couple sitting right here from Missouri. And finally they, finally they said Jefferson City. So the answer is Jefferson City. But you said, you know, you buzz, you say, no, really the answer is St. Louis. And he says, no, it's Jefferson City. No, no. I feel the capital should be St. Louis. It's a bigger city. It's on the thoroughfare. It's closer to Chicago, which is the major city in the Midwest. It just makes sense. I hope you're following this. The most important question this man ever faced is who is God? And this man who dealt in known, factual, evidential answers made this incredible intuitive statement, I feel. There's a man named Charles Taylor, a Canadian like Alex Trebek, and Charles Taylor talks about the fact that there are, there's a, what he calls a social imagery. And social imagery, he says, is, is, is the common understanding that is embraced by a group of people which leads to consistent behavior. So it's common understanding by a group that leads to consistent behavior. And he says, for years we've had social imagery in, in churches, in communities, in countries where certain things were held that led to social cohesion. He says, but now in this age, it really, it's not social imagery. Social imagery is only what people intuitively feel to be right. It's not based upon fact. It's based upon, so here, here's this guy that's dealt with facts. All of a sudden, when it comes to the concept of God, he just becomes super intuitive. What I want to say is this. This prophecy says he'll be born in a real city with dirt roads named Bethlehem. Isaiah says he'll be born of a young woman or a virgin. Literally. Supernatural. He was seen. He was worshipped. He was a man of flesh and blood. 
He lived a real life and he dealt a bloody death on the cross for our sins and he rose victorious over death. It was a real historical happenstance. It wasn't something that gives cohesion to your life because it's a nice story. It's a, it's a Gilgamesh myth. It's a story about Thor and Valhalla, all that kind of stuff. No, it really, really happened. And if it really, really happened, I've got to deal with it. I can't dismiss it by saying, oh, well, it's just, it, that's your truth. No, it is truth. And that's what we need to say to people around us. And that's why I'm always drawn to the, the, the clear, simple logic of a guy named C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. And, and he says, you know, when you look at the person of Jesus, don't come to me, he says, with the, with, with the silly statements that he is a wonderful teacher who showed us how to live, but he's not God. And Lewis says, he hasn't left us that option. We could go to the Gospels and Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Not only making himself older than one of the oldest guys in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, Abraham, but saying, I am, making himself equal with God. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. He says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. I am. And the Father were one. I mean, these are, these are blasphemous statements, unless it's true. He says to his disconsolate disciples right before he leaves them, don't be troubled. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to build a place for you, and I'm going to receive you there one day because I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Lewis steps back and he says, don't come to this prattling nonsense about, about him being a good guy. He said, either he is Lord of all glory, who he claimed to be, or he's a liar of immense dimensions and really dark, dark liar. Or he's a lunatic. And Lewis says, he's a lunatic on the same level as a man who will walk up to you and say, I am a poached egg. He's just out of his mind. And so I, I say to you, as I look at this real town with a real life and a real person, either he's Lord, liar, or lunatic, and we celebrate his lordship. That's the message we need to get out to people. Whether they're in a kingdom close to the Himalayas or where they're on our college campuses or whether they're in our neighborhoods or in our families. Behold the glory of Christ. Dwell secure. May he be our peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today and just thank you for the, the ability to come together and be uh, attentive to the word. And thank you that the scripture is very clear about a real little town that will welcome the one who's ancient of days, who will be the ultimate ruler, who will come from the house of David, whose name is Jesus. So as we contemplate that, may you fill us with hope and joy and purpose. Lord, give us the ability to say and speak the name of Jesus to those around us this holiday. In Christ's name. Amen.